that we delight ourselves in Him, captivated by His beauty. And then we said, I delight myself in Him in the glory of His presence. The glory of His presence. Uh, I hope this morning that uh, certainly that we may capture a little more of the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Turn with your Bibles, please, to Revelation, the book of the Revelation, chapter 10, please. Chapter 10. For some of you, this is going to be an exciting Sunday for you, and for some, it'll be a disappointing Sunday. We are ending our series on the mysteries. In fact, um, there are two mysteries that we have not covered, and I will only be covering one today. Um, One of the ones that we just uh, did not get a chance to cover, uh, but I encourage you to look at, it's a very interesting one, is the mystery of Babylon the Great. You can look at that in Revelation 17 and 18. Um, But the other one that we're going to look at today is what we call the mystery of God. The mystery of God. And... uh, We're in Revelation chapter 10, and just real quick so you understand here, that when we look at the book of the Revelation, uh, we know that the first three chapters are more historical, and then when you get to chapters 4 through the rest, it's all prophetical, right? Uh, Dealing with things of the future. And then you've got um, these breaks, actually, amongst uh, the things that John is receiving here. And, uh, you know, you have the seals, and you have the, the, the trumpets, and what happens is sometimes in the, in, right in the middle of these, we have like this break. Okay, it's very interesting. Uh, for example, um, we have between the sixth and the seventh seal, right? Uh, you have, and I believe it's in chapter, um, let's see, in chapter six, you have the sixth seal. But then in chapter 7, there's no mention of a seal. And then we get to chapter 8 is the seventh seal. And then the same thing with these trumpets. We're going to see that in chapter 9, we have the, the, sixth, the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet. And then there's this break. And then not till we get to verse 15 of chapter 11 do we finally hear of the seventh trumpet. And what we have here in the book of the Revelation is this parentheses, if you will. Okay? We have a parentheses that's kind of put in there, and it's a, a chapter of explanation. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, Revelation chapter 10. Chapter 10, please. Let's read it together. Okay. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun. And his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand to heaven 
And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. As he declared to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And so I went to the angel and I said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey to your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And the Lord will bless the reading of his word again this morning. Let's just open in a word of prayer. Our Father, we know that uh, the book of the Revelation sometimes is difficult uh, for us to understand. But we also know that um, we have but no man to teach us. We have thy Holy Spirit. We pray that he would lead and guide us this morning into all truth, that he would help us to see the excellency of thy son, and uh, that uh, as we increase in our knowledge of him, Lord God, that it would cause us to live more holy lives, um, that it would cause us to live lives uh, that are honoring and pleasing to thee. Uh, give us understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so... Chapter 10, as we're reading, I don't know if you saw this, but chapter 10 is pretty much going to deal with two things. There are two things here. We have this strong angel, and we have this little book. Okay? Interesting contrast, right? We have this strong and mighty angel, and we also have this little book. Some may say in the first seven verses of this chapter, we're looking at Jesus. In the second section, we're looking at John. But I believe in the first step of this parentheses, right, this explanation chapter, I think the first step is to direct our thoughts towards the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, listen, there are many good expositors, much greater than me, okay, that do not see this as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm here to tell you this morning that I do believe that it is the Lord Jesus Christ, this strong angel that John sees. And we're going to look at why I think so. Hey, one, you'll see that he's described as a strong angel. And you might say to yourself, well, why, if it's the Lord Jesus, why is he described as an angel? As an angel. Well, I may remind you that all throughout the Old Testament, right, we have that uh, Christophanies, I think they call it, or the Theophanies, where you have the pre-incarnate Christ, right? And many times when he comes on the scene in the Old Testament, he's referred to as the angel of the Lord. He's the angel of the Lord. You remember the story of uh, Abraham, right? And he's standing at the door of his tent and he sees three men approaching, the three angels, right? And, and he convinces them to stay and, and he's hospital and they have a meal together. And then two of them continue on, don't they, to Sodom. And it says the other one remained behind and it says it was the Lord. <laughs> it was the Lord himself. The other one I thought was interesting too is, and there's several examples, but in Judges chapter 13, I don't know if you remember the story of Manoah's wife, right? Remember they were 
uh, told that they were going to have a child. It was Samson. Right, Samson. But the interesting thing there is that this angel of the Lord comes to tell them that they're going to have a child and they worship the angel of the Lord. And he receives their worship. They offer sacrifices to him because it was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state as well. So I don't have any problems here, again, seeing John describe the Lord Jesus Christ as some strong angel. But not only that, he continues, he says, um, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud. Clothed with a cloud. You remember uh, that God's people, uh, when they were uh, exited from Egypt, right, and as they were wandering uh, through the wilderness, they were led during the day by a pillar of cloud, which, was, of course, was a pillar of fire by night. But it was a pillar of cloud. And you remember that same pillar of cloud when they would erect the tabernacle, right? And they would set up that Holy of Holies and they'd set up that mercy seat. It was that very cloud that would come and it would descend and sit upon the mercy seat. And we know that that cloud was an indication of the very presence of God in the midst of them. You remember uh, the Lord Jesus Christ when He was with His disciples at the Mount of transfiguration. In that story there, it says that they offered to make a tent for Elijah and for Moses, I believe, and for the Lord Jesus. And it says that a cloud enveloped them, that glory cloud. right? And that when that cloud was removed, they saw none other but Jesus. Jesus. Again, that cloud signifying the presence of God. You know, too, it's interesting that... uh, when you look at his ascension, right? That, that time when after 40 days after his resurrection and being seen by many, they came to a spot where he gave him his final instructions. And then it says that, right, he ascended into heaven. I don't know if anybody's noticed this, but it says that a cloud received him. You know, as a kid, I'm always picturing like Jesus sitting on a cloud and like going up into heaven. It says, no, no, no. And again, I believe it's that glory cloud, that Shekinah glory again, that cloud that received the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says that when He comes again, He'll be coming in the cloud. The cloud. We will meet Him in that cloud. And so certainly, He is clothed with a cloud But not only that, it says, and a rainbow was on his head. We know what the rainbow speaks of, right? In Noah's time, it certainly speaks of God's covenant mercy. right? God, in his wrath, destroys the earth right? with a great flood. But then he makes a covenant right? that he would never destroy the earth like that again. And he sends a rainbow as a promise of that covenant, of his mercy. And then we read in this book here, Revelation, we read in Revelation chapter 4 that now there's a rainbow around the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a rainbow there. And see, that the rainbow was, was always kind of associated with judgment. right? That God would no longer judge the earth the way He did as with the flood. Um, but it was a covenant of mercy. And now we see this rainbow around the throne in Revelation chapter 4. And and to me, it it indicates that judgment now belongs to Him who sits on the throne. 
that rainbow indicates that the one who sits in that throne, the judgment belongs to him now. Remember, when God sent that rainbow, right, he allowed man to set up their own government. He allowed man to, to decide what they were going to do. And here now, it's an indication that the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one who is given uh, judgment. That he is now the head. But I love this one here. Is, uh, it says his face was like the sun. I was sharing this morning. Of the uh, of Saul's account, right when he met the Lord Jesus, and how John himself, right when he met the Lord Jesus, and uh, certainly uh, at that Mount of Transfiguration, uh, also it says that his face uh, did shine as the sun. In uh, Revelation this morning, we looked at his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Uh, one of the things that I teach the kids at, at school uh, with science is uh, we look at the, the solar system. And it's pretty fun to see how uh, years ago that there was a man that, by the name of Ptolemy. And, you know, it made sense. He would get up in the morning and he would see the sun over here. And then you'd see the sun move overhead and then set over in the west. And so naturally he said, oh, man, we must be the center of our solar system. And so in school, back then, you would actually have a geocentric model. You would have the earth in the middle, and the sun, and the stars, and the planet. Everything would revolve around the earth. The earth was the center for many years. And then a guy by the name of Copernicus came along, and uh, he realized, wait a minute. Something's not right here. That sun looks like it's moving, because the earth is moving. And through further study, they found out that, wait a minute, actually the earth is actually, it has an orbit. It has this weird oval egg-shaped path that it takes, and it actually goes around the sun. And so they found that the sun was actually the center of our solar system, and he created a heliocentric model that they use even to this day. But the sun was the center, not the earth. The sun was the real center. See, God will see to it that everything revolves around the Son, His Son. Everything revolves around Him. You see, when God's Son is given His perfect place, what a difference it makes. We read also in Revelation, uh, when we look at the churches there, right? Jesus is actually what? He's not in His rightful place. He's outside knocking. He's outside. Christendom had put Jesus Christ outside of his rightful place. When the sun is put outside, you can expect nothing but confusion on the inside. Nothing. You see, when Christ is given his rightful place, everything is right. You and I, brother, says we need to give Christ his rightful place. In our lives. We as an assembly. We as an assembly. We have to make sure. That we give Christ. His rightful place. In Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. It says the son of righteousness. With healing. In his wings. We also read in uh, Genesis chapter 1. And in Psalm 136. That the son is given to rule. 
the day. Brothers and sisters, listen, one day this son will rule the day. <laughs> he will rule the day. S-O-N. Just as the son S-U-N has been given to rule the day today, the son S-O-N will rule the day very soon. And so he has a face that was like the sun. And so they describe here his, his body. They describe his face. They even describe his feet. They said his feet were like pillars of fire. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ is described just as this earlier in the book of the Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1 and in Revelation chapter 2, it says that his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. And so again, we know too that that, that fire right, always speaks also of judgment. And so, but you have these pillars, right? These pillars. And so to me, it, it speaks of stability in judgment. Stability that the Lord Jesus has in his judgment. And he says something else about the feet, uh, which is really neat here. It says that he, he placed his right foot on the sea and he placed his left foot on the land. There are some who have problems with this. Um, we know that that cloud that we talked about, there was a time where that cloud was removed from the temple. right? And they saw it removed and it actually went out by the way of the Mount of Olives. And we read in the Bible that Jesus Christ will come back again, right there again, on the Mount of Olives. And so how can John see this here? How could John see the Lord Jesus Christ putting his feet down when it hasn't happened yet? This whole idea of him coming down on the Mount of Olives, it's yet to come still when he sets up his kingdom. But again, I think you have to understand that this is a vision. This is a vision that John is having. And I think that when he sees the Lord's feet, as it were, his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, it, it has so many things that it tells us. So many pictures. Right? One, it reminds me of uh, Psalm 2. Verses 7 through 9, where it says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, when John sees the right foot and the left foot coming down on the earth and on the sea, he is claiming authority over the entire earth. Authority. In this portion, we read that the Lord Jesus is going to swear by Him who lives forever and ever that there should be delay no longer. The time for waiting is over. There is no more delay. He will put his feet down in absolute authority over his purchased possession. God will deal with the inhabitants of the earth. And he will set up his kingdom. The, uh, James talked a little bit about the, the mystery of iniquity. And you will recall, remember, that uh, in Genesis chapter 15, God's people, right, they, they go through 400 years of slavery, right? And then they travel the wilderness for another 40, 80 years, right? And God says why, right? 
In that land of Canaan where he was bringing them, the promised land where he was bringing them was where the Amorites lived. Right? And he says, listen, the cup of iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. It wasn't yet full. But there came a point, right? It came a point where God said, okay, that's it. The, the sin of the Amorites is too great now. Their cup is way too full, and now I will take them from this earth and bring you into that land. Brothers and sisters, it's the same thing. There's going to come a point where the, that cup of iniquity, right, is too much. It's too much. And God says, that's it. I will delay no longer. I will deal now with man's sin. I will deal with these sinners who reject my son. I will deal with the inhabitants of this earth and set up his kingdom. I don't know if anyone can relate to this who's grown up with a stern father. But when dad said he was putting his foot down, he meant it. He wasn't messing around. That was it. When he said, hey, I'm putting my foot down here. There was no questions. There was no changing his mind. And in a way, again, God is putting his foot down here. He is determined to deal with sin and the sinners. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, it's kind of a scary statement that he makes here, dealing with this time period right here. He says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. God actually has to shorten the days of this judgment or nobody would survive. No one. That's how severe God's judgment is during this time. Just a short time period. When you think of the history of mankind, such a short, short time. But he says, listen, they have to be shortened or no flesh would be saved. Everything would be utterly destroyed. Billions and billions of people. God will put his foot down. You see, here we see God's long suffering and patience are at an end. From this point, remember this is that little parenthesis between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. At the blowing of that seventh trumpet, there will be an increased tempo of judgment involving both the earth and the sea. Kind of a picture there as the Lord Jesus puts his foot down on the earth and on the sea. There will be an increased amount of judgment that will happen to both the earth and the sea. And so in many ways here we see this mystery of God. It's interesting that... uh, that we're covering this today as our last one because originally it was earlier in our, our series, but it got kind of bumped and we got to place it here. And certainly it could be uh, uh, divine in the sense that uh, in many ways the mystery of God is the climax. It is the heading up of all the great mysteries of the New Testament. This is it. All those mysteries that we've been looking at, all those doctrines that we've been looking at, they all leading up to this point right here where now the mystery of God will be finished. The patience and long-suffering of God will be over. And as he says, he will delay no longer. He will put his foot down and deal with man's sin, deal with sinners and the inhabitants of this earth. Not only that, but it says that it describes his voice verse 3 of Revelation 10, it says, And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. We read again of this voice in Revelation chapter 1, verse 15. John hears that voice again. And one, it's the sound of a trumpet. But another one in chapter 1, it says it's, it's the voice 
as the sound of many waters. I don't know if anybody has ever been somewhere where there are many waters rushing. I've been to Niagara Falls. Okay? If, you've, if you've been to Niagara Falls, you can just picture it right now. Okay? If you haven't, Google it. All right? Listen to it as that. The sound the, the, of many waters, the noise is such that, that every other noise, every other sound is drowned out. And that's exactly how God speaks to sinners. His voice drowns out any other sound or noise. All will hear that voice too. You know, for, for you and I this morning, we've heard that voice. Right? And for us, it was the bleeding of a lamb. That was the voice that we heard. We read of that lamb that was slain in Revelation chapter 5. And we heard that bleeding lamb call out to us, right? And cry out to us. But those who have rejected, right? That bleeding of the lamb, that sound of the lamb, the Lord Jesus, those who have rejected God's Son, they will hear a voice and it will be the voice of a roaring lion. This is the voice that they will hear. I was looking at, uh, I was studying times when lions roar. And uh, it's interesting that one of the times that lions definitely roar is when they seize their prey. They will quietly sneak up upon their prey. And when they get to where they can capture their prey, they let out a roar! I've got them! All will seem to be quiet and peaceful when the lion will roar one day. But it will be a roar of victory. A cry of victory. And not only that, but we see this image here that not only does he place his right foot uh, on the sea and his left foot on the earth, but he raises his right hand to heaven. raises his right hand and he roars. And he roars a cry of victory. You know, there, um, I was reminded of other times when the Lord Jesus cried out. Right? We, can you hear that substitute cry? As He was on the cross and He cried out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Shortly after that, we hear him shout out a cry of victory. It is finished. Victory over sin, over death, over Satan. A victory cry. Brothers and sisters, there's a time coming that we're all looking forward to. Right? If we don't leave this earth before then, is that the day of the coming of the Lord, it says that He will give a shout like the voice of an archangel. We may actually hear that cry as well. The cry of our bridegroom calling to us to come join Him for the marriage supper of the Lamb. But brothers and sisters, those who do not hear that substitute cry, 
those who do not hear that cry of victory, those who do not hear the cry of the bridegroom saying, come, those who do not will be left behind to hear the angry roar of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Just a little side note here. It's interesting. Is, um, then there's these seven thunders, right? And they utter their voices. And just as about... Uh, and clearly, whatever these, these utterances were, John could understand them because he was about to write them down. But uh, again, a voice comes from heaven saying, seal up the things which they have just uttered and do not write them. I just think it's interesting as we've been finishing this series now, right? One of the things that we've learned is that these mysteries are hidden truths that now God has revealed, right? These have been revealed to His church, right? Paul, a ministry, a minister of the steward, um, a steward of the mysteries of God, has declared these things to us in His Word, and we have understanding. But yet, listen, this shows us. And I just think it's so encouraging that there are certain things that God has still kept secret. <laughs> In fact, here there are seven things, seven things that he chose not to reveal. We don't know. We don't know what those thunders said. We don't know what they said to John. But for some reason, God and his omniscience has probably said, uh-uh, don't write that. Don't write it. Again, it just, just showed me the sovereignty of God, <laughs> that he can choose to reveal what he wants and he can choose to keep secret what he wants. So I said, we see here uh, this strong angel, which I certainly think is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But we also see a little book. We see a little book. One of the things you'll notice first about this book is the book is open. <laughs> Both times it emphasizes that. In verse 2, it says he had a little book open in his hand. And then down... Uh, in verse 8, go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel. I just was thanking God this morning that for an open Bible. Right? Thank God for an open Bible. You see, the devil tries to shut that book. Right? He loves it when our Bibles stay closed. And man, we are living in a time now where so much Bible study happens when you don't even open your Bible. We're so quick to go to a commentary, to go to a website, and we fail to even open up the book. And Satan is so happy with that. He loves it when the book stays closed. There are those also who will tell you that this book is only for the educated. That this book is only for the clergy. That you have no right to open this book. Brothers and sisters, the book is open. <laughs> Praise the Lord that the book is open. So many books, right? Especially Revelation, right? But other ones too, they're never read. They're never preached on. Yet it's all God's Word. The Bible is an open book for those who wish to read it. Aren't you thankful for that? It is an open book for all who wish to read it. But not only that, but this book is offered. This book is offered to John. And it's offered to us. And notice how there, there's not a feeling that's offered. 
here. Right? All that's offered to him is a little book. That's all that is offered to him. It's not a feeling, but it is his word. And John 5.24 it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Again, we are living in a time where people want to have some feeling, some experience that they want from God. God says, I say unto you, He that heareth my word. Not someone who has a feeling. Someone who has some experience. He who hears my word. And in 1 John 5.13 it says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. These things I have written. Paul even says this is the Gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to your feelings? No. According to the Scriptures. And that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. A book is offered, brothers. It's not a feeling. Yes, the book is open. And it is offered to you and to I. But not only that, this book was desired. In verse 8, John says, uh, not sorry, verse 8, verse 9, give me the little book. <laughs> give it to me. Is that our desire? God, give me your word. Give me your book. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, it says, For you have been born again. You know what through? Through the living and enduring Word of God. That's how you've been born again. Desire the Word of God. Tell God, give me your book. And not only was it desired, but it was taken and it was eaten. What good is what good is it if your Bible is the best bound? I mean it's bound by Paul's leather co. It's got a symbol on the back, right? Or it has the most beautiful print. What does it matter if that's true you buy if it's never read? It's never read. Brothers and sisters, what does it take? For you this morning to have an appetite for the reading of this book. What does it take? The book is open. It is offered to you. Like newborn babes crave, desire the pure milk of the word. Desire it. Pray that God would develop an appetite for the reading of this book. Just read it. You'll be amazed at what pops up at you. Amazed. But you have to read it. you also notice here that uh, John, he does taste the book, and just as the angel had said, it was sweet to the taste, right? And just as the angel said, Right? Oh, then it made his stomach bitter. You know, too many people today, they love to taste the book, but they don't want to digest it. Are you like that? Are you one of those that just likes to, hey, I'm just going to grab a verse, makes me feel good for today. 
You know, I'll taste it. It's sweet. But do we have an appetite for this book knowing that sometimes it will cause our stomach to turn? As you read this book, it will reveal to you the sins that you still have in your life. Or even the other side of that is that as I'm reading, I, I still can understand why some people in this world still continue to reject him. It troubles me. It troubles no matter how many times I open this book and I share it with my colleagues and I show them that they're lost and they're on their way to hell. It causes my stomach to be upset. Knowing, as we just looked at today, that there's a time when God will delay no longer. When His patience and long-suffering is over and judgment comes. That upsets you. We need to be ones who not only taste God's word, but we need to digest it. Listen, this mystery of God is the fact that for thousands of years, God has waited in love and patience for men to repent of their sins and to turn to Him for forgiveness. Thousands of years. But there's coming a day when that patience and long-suffering will be over. And God will delay no longer. God will wait until the sin of man comes to a head. When that cup is full and their open defiance of Him, and then He will judge it all. And He will take to Himself His great power and His reign. As I said, the Son, S-O-N, will soon rule the day. Give Him His rightful place. Give Him His rightful place. And thank the Lord this morning that we have heard His voice, right? And we look forward to hearing our bridegroom shout, for He comes for us. And there's no cry of an angry lion for those of us who believe in His Son. Those who reject His Son, all that waits for you is an angry roar of the lion. And lastly, the Bible is an open book for those who wish to read it. It is an open book. Any who desire to read it, take it, read it, taste it, digest it. It is this word, right, that we have been born again. It is through the living and enduring word of God that we have been born again this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for thousands of years you have waited in love for men to repent of their sins, to turn to you for forgiveness. We thank you for this mystery of God that has been revealed to us that there is coming a day when the sin of man will come to a head. And your son will place his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth.
And he will deal with the inhabitants of the earth. He will cry out like the roar of an angry lion. Oh, how grateful we are this morning that for us that voice is that of a bleeding lamb who offered himself for us so that we would have no condemnation, that we would be free from judgment much more than having been saved from the wrath to come. Father, we thank you that your book is open to us, that it is offered to us. We pray that we would develop a healthier appetite for the reading of this book, that we would desire it, that we would take it and taste it, Oh, we have certainly tasted and we've seen that you are good, dear Lord. We thank you for your Son and who he is and all that he has done. We magnify him this morning in his most excellent and majestic name. Amen.